is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. Today is the National Day of Prayer proclaimed by agents of government, believe it or not. Proclaimed by agents of government as well as uh, citizens of the United States of America. But back in 1775, Congress itself, Congress itself proclaimed a national day of prayer. And numerous times since then, there have been national days of prayer proclaimed. For instance, during the Civil War, you may recall that Abraham Lincoln presented one of the most profound and heartfelt calls to prayer for the country and a prayer for repentance, actually. Something that's hard, we're hard-pressed to find today in America, even in our churches, a call for repentance. Yet Abraham Lincoln called for repentance. He says it behooves us to come before God in humility of heart and in repentance. So today on Viewpoint, we're not talking primarily about the National Day of Prayer, but how it is possible for a National Day of Prayer to exist when, in fact, so many say that there is an impenetrable wall between church and state. What in the world does that mean? And when you find that on the Liberty Bell itself are proclaimed words from the book of Leviticus, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all the inhabitants thereof. What do you make of that? Well, today on Viewpoint, we have a very special guest joining us. To my knowledge, uh, uh, Mark David Hall has not joined us on this program before, uh, in spite of the fact that we've had somewhere between 3,500 and 4,000 national guests over the past uh, 28 years. So he is being added to the list here, and there is good reason for that because he's bringing a book to us today that I think will provide a lot of insight. It's called Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land, How Christianity Has Advanced Freedom and Equality for All Americans. Mark, that's a mouthful, and it's good to have you on the program. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Chuck. Now, give us a little uh, idea of where you're coming from you know, as a good trial attorney that uh, I was for 20 years in California, uh, bringing on a witness such as yourself, uh, sort of an expert witness, you've got to prove that uh, they have the expertise necessary to speak on the subject. So uh, in order to validate that, uh, and I don't always do this, but uh, give us a little hint as to why you have been determined by so many to be qualified to speak on this subject. Well, thank you for that question. So I uh, am an academic, a professor. I earned a Ph.D. at the University of Virginia, and I've written or edited a dozen academic books. About five years ago, I felt called to write for the general reading public, um, works that are more accessible and maybe more useful. Well, good for you. So in, in 2019, my book, did America Have a Christian Founding came out with Nelson Books, and they argued that America's founders were profoundly influenced by Christianity when they created America's constitutional order. There were a few chapters I couldn't include in it, so I thought I would have a sequel to that book. But in between the publication of that book and the publication of this book, 
1619 project came out. And oh, this yes. It really annoyed me. I, I'm sure your listeners are aware of it. There's a series of, of essays in the New York Times that basically contend that American history is defined by slavery and racism. They were ver- and, that, you know, that 1619 project was, in my opinion, uh, sort of bordering on a, a version of blasphemy. No, it, it really is just horrible history, to be sure. It's been condemned by numerous leftist center historians. And among other things that annoy me is that whenever the 1619 tra- Project treats Christianity, it's always a force that has to be overcome, mm-hmm. a repressive and oppressive force. Right. And so I want to tell a very different tale and proclaim liberty. You know, we say here on this program that viewpoint determines destiny. That's the name of the, the, the title of the program, Viewpoint. But it is true that our viewpoint determines destiny. There are no neutral viewpoints. And so we see this played out with regard to the role of uh, Christianity and the gospel of Jesus Christ in the founding of the country and in the unfolding of uh, liberty and freedom and justice for all. Uh, It's all played out there. And yet the viewpoint that one brings to it determines whether or not they're going to see it as something that was good honorable and holy or something that was destructive and continues to be, uh, shall we say, inhibiting to freedom and love and joy and uh, genuine democracy. Viewpoint does determine destiny in this regard, doesn't it? You know, I I sure think it very oftentimes does. I'm not sure if it always has to. One of my favorite books on, on this subject is by a fellow named Barry Allen Shane, The Myth of American Individualism, The Protestant Origins of American Political Thought. Uh-huh. He's a Yale Ph.D. Uh, he teaches at a, a at an excellent liberal arts college. And he ex- he tells people that he's a, an agnostic Jew. And yet he's able to look at the American founding, and he can see that Protestantism had a profound impact on the American founders. And so he's not cheering for the home team. It's, it's just a historical well, yeah. reality. In other words, he his viewpoint is aligning with reality instead of uh, trying to skew it to conform to some uh, current political persuasion. No, I think that's exactly right. And I suppose you could say the 1619 Project authors are doing the same thing. They have this, this worldview that says race is, is, is paramount. And racism is paramount, and they read American history in light of that. Right. And so it's necessary because that has become the signature, uh, signature, uh, shall we say, filter through which current historians or current politicians are viewing uh, the matter of our country and its background. Uh, it's necessary for us perhaps to spend a few minutes uh, after the coming break to talk about uh, the role of slavery, because as I read my Bible, uh, slavery was throughout the Bible, from the early portions of the Bible, even through the New Testament. Slavery has been throughout the world, and uh, there is virtually almost no country that has not had some form of slavery, uh, including uh, Africa, from which the slaves came that is, the African slaves, and were made slaves by their own people. 
Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right, and I'd, I'd be happy to talk about that. Did you say we're going to have a break now, or should well, I? Well, we're going to have one shortly, and uh, just go ahead. Sure. So let me um, acknowledge that you're absolutely right. Slavery has been known throughout all of human history. All societies have uh, participated in it. Slavery was in America before 1619 because Native Americans enslaved other Native Americans. Now, wait a minute. But that's a novel to... idea. Yeah. No, it's, um, it's Native Americans enslaved other Native Americans. They were not sacrosanct from the practice of slavery because they had wars and they took over uh, people from other tribes. That is a very unique, perceptive idea and should help us to overcome a lot of the bondage related to this issue. We'll be right back after this, friends, with our new friend Mark David Hall and his book, Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. So good to join you here on Viewpoint again today as we near two days away from our 28th year on the air. And uh, it's such a delight to talk with uh, our new friend Mark David Hall concerning his book, Proclaim Liberty Throughout the Land, since this ministry is called Save America Ministries, dedicated to rebuilding the foundations of faith and freedom as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation here at America's Greatest Crisis Hour on the near edge of the second coming. I know that's a mouthful, but that's exactly why uh, God called me to leave the practice of law at the height of my career, to plead his cause in the land. And uh, that cause has first been pleaded not to the liberals, not to the abortionists, not to Slick Willie in the White House or Barack Obama or Joe Biden or any other third party, but rather to God's own house, God's own people. If there's any hope for proclaiming liberty throughout the land to all the inhabitants thereof, it has to come through those who profess the name of Christ. And indeed, that's exactly what happened in the founding of this country, isn't it, Mark? Yeah, no, I, I, I believe so. So at the time of the American founding, let's just say 1776, of Americans of European descent, 90% are Protestant, 2% Roman Catholic, about 2,500 Jews in four or five or so cities, and these um, these Protestants had founded colonial settlements, of course. They were largely self-governing, mm-hmm. especially in Massachusetts Bay. They attempted to create Christian societies. By the time you get to the founding era, these folks are reading their Bibles, they're drawing from their Bibles, and they're profoundly influenced by Christian ideas in every respect. And I'd be happy to chat about um, whatever you'd like in that regard. Well, that's true. And just last week, there was a, a, a great celebration and remembrance, a solemn assembly, actually, with regard to America's first landing there at uh, Cape Henry in uh, Virginia Beach. And I was there uh, establishing a covenant to uh, uh, seek to return our country to uh, God and uh, his rulership in our land. And that was back in 1607. A cross was planted there, 
Ten days later, a cross was planted at Jamestown as they sailed up the James River, America's birth river. And then, uh, ten days after that, Captain Christopher Newport sailed up the James to the place of the falls that is now called Richmond, from which this program airs. And there they planted another cross. So the country in 1607 was memorialized, established in the planting of three crosses. Now, that didn't mean we were just a pure, holy, and Christian people because not everybody that was there was holy, Christian, and perfect. In fact, Mark, my understanding is that there isn't a single person in this country today or has ever been that was holy, perfect, and utopian, uh, having reached utopian Christian perfection uh, before God. Would that be true? Oh, of course it's true, right? All sin and fall short of the glory of God. And, you know, thank goodness America's founders were convinced of this reality. And so James Madison, for instance, says in Federalist 51, if men were angels, government wouldn't be necessary. <laughs> but he goes on to say men aren't angels, and so therefore we need federalism, we need separation of powers, we need checks and balances. Now you can contrast this to what's going on over in Europe. I mean, Enlightenment thinkers do indeed have a, a view that humans can be perfectible. And so their ideal form of government was a strong central government run mm-hmm. by intellectual elites. And we see somewhat how that played out in the French Revolution, which was, of course, a bloody, destructive revolution, as opposed to the War for American Independence, which was a responsible resistance to acts of British tyranny and then the creation of a constitutional order that has served America remarkably well. Well, Mark, I believe that we are in our own French Revolution today. We're moving very rapidly in that direction in this country because we have a group of people that have been in power or trying to take over all power that uh, have the same belief as the Europeans did that we can receive, uh, achieve utopianism uh, through humankind. And uh, so it's the rejection of God and his authority. I wonder how much liberty one can have when human beings that are profoundly sinful that would cause the heads of uh, a vast majority of those in power, as happened in the French Revolution, to roll down the streets of Paris. I wonder if that would happen in America, what we would think. You know, the American founders had a syllogism. This was identified by Jim Hudson of the Library of Congress. And it basically goes like this. If Republican government is to work, that small-R Republican government, you must have a moral people. Mm-hmm. To have a moral people, you must have a Christian people. And so, yeah, as more and more Americans are drifting away from, from Christianity, I think America's founders would be profoundly, profoundly worried. And you are seeing assaults on liberty of the sort that I thought we had overcome by the late 90s. For instance, in the late 90s, everyone agreed that religious liberty should be robustly protected, Democrats and Republicans alike. In the 21st century, all of a sudden, progressives basically don't want to protect certainly conservative persons of faith. Jack Phillips, a cake baker, mm-hmm. a doctor who doesn't believe he can't form an abortion, a pharmacist who believes she can't give out abort-efficient drugs. No religious liberty for these people, say that today's left, unfortunately. And yet, in 1993, the very year that we formed Safe America Ministries, 
both Democrats and Republicans came together to enact the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. What do you make of that? That's exactly right. I tell that story in in, in the book, as you know, and it really is striking. So in 1963, the liberal justice, William Brennan, came up with a wonderful test for protecting religious liberty. The U.S. Supreme Court backed away from that test in 1990 in a very disappointing decision. But as you point out, what was telling is Congress came together, 97 to 3 in the Senate, unanimously in the House, a law signed into law by President Bill Clinton, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, aimed at returning to that older test. So that's a wonderful law. It's been a useful law. And um, it, it was great. You know, I, I long for the days where Democrats and Republicans can come together and agree that religious liberty for all must be robustly protected. But since that time, you've had uh, Barack Obama, who did everything he could to undermine religious liberty and to uh, compel uh, Bible-believing Christians to do things that were abominable in their sight, such as uh, carry-on abortion and uh, the practice of homosexuality. He spread it throughout the earth. And then came uh, a fellow by the name of Joe Biden, Uh, who has turned Obama's uh, war against uh, religious freedom uh, into an art form. So uh, where are we headed? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. Uh, Those two presidential administrations have been the the least friendly to religious liberty, I'm tempted to say, ever. You'll notice President Obama routinely talked about the freedom to worship. For him, religious liberty has to do with what goes on in a church, a mosque, or a synagogue, mm-hmm. but bring your faith into the public square, attempt to run your business as a as a Christian business or as an Islamic business or an Orthodox Jewish business, and the state can step in and say, no, you may not do that, you must do that. It's very ha- heavy-handed um, administrative restrictions usually, um, and almost always supported from the far left. And, and I think this is why we, we as Christians have to be involved in the public square, fighting for religious liberty, voting for um, candidates who who are firm on these sorts of issues. And they don't have to be Republicans, right? If you have a a pro-life Democrat who's overly committed, you know, overtly committed to religious liberty and is fiscally conservative, I would vote for that person in a heartbeat Mm -hmm. over a Republican who's bad on religious liberty and abortion, for instance. Well, if you go back to uh, the days of Daniel Webster, and you talk about him, great orator, he lauded the refugees that came over from not-so-jolly-old England, where they're about to have a coronation, and uh, he he lauded them about their desire uh, and their uh, the import of their lives and decisions for civil liberty and uh, religious liberty. And even Alexis de Tocqueville, that secular Frenchman that came over here to try to figure out what it was that made America great about 1830, uh, he saw that France, uh, that it had a revolution at a similar time as ours, uh, proclaiming liberty, equality, and fraternity, uh, had gone in a radically opposite direction than what happened in America as a result of our revolution for freedom. And uh, so he studies us for nine months, goes across the countries nine months, and comes away with the conviction that the most outstanding characteristic that he noticed was Americans' commitment to the authority of the Bible that governed their lives, whether or not they were Christians. 
it, he said that the Bible's authority was universal. How in the world now can those looking back at someone like that and say, no, uh, this country had no sincere uh, Christian foundation, uh, that's just a myth? It's a ridiculously ridiculous argument from the perspective of history. And as you point out, to Tocqueville and, and Webster, you know, recognize this. And they praised the Puritans in the early 19th century. Unfortunately, I think Nathaniel Hawthorne comes along and writes the Scarlet Letter, mm-hmm. Arthur Miller, the Crucible. And in the 20th century, you have primarily agnostic or atheistic um, historians and students of the era who paint horrible pictures of the Puritans as tyrannical theocrats who were worrying they're, they're, uh, that someone would be having fun somewhere and that had to, <laughs> we had to put a stop to it, right? And so it's just colored. It's absolutely distorted our views of, our, of the Puritans. And so, as you know, in the first chapter, I attempt to rehabilitate them. Now, I don't argue they're 21st century um, good liberal Republicans. By liberal, I mean classical liberal. Of course, they, they had some practices and some laws that, that I'm very glad we rejected. But on balance, no society ever had been more free, more equal than what you find in Puritan New England. And more true to the gospel. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Were they pure? Absolutely pure? No. Were they uh, utopian? Did they establish a, a religious utopia? No. But the best thing that they did, their intent was to establish a country, a land that would be committed to the authority of God as creator and his word. And that's why uh, they were referred to oftentimes as a new Israel. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Let me just give you one example. Go ahead. It's a great example. So in, in England, you could be put to death for literally hundreds of offenses, right? We all know Robin Hood taking a deer in the king's forest, death. Stealing a few few shillings, death. The Puritans got rid of almost all of those laws, almost all of those uh, the, those crimes for which you could be punished by death. Mm-hmm. And they look to the Bible for guidance, and they see in the Old Testament that if you steal something, the appropriate penalty for it for that is restoration, not death. So if I steal your cow, I have to give give you a cow back, and then give you one of my cows. Right? It's far more humane approach to punishing theft. Than, um, than what you had over in, in not too And by the way, England. that is the foundation for American law as well. Believe yeah, it or not. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree 100%. Okay. So why is it that we have such a, uh, a battle ongoing, an increasing battle that is seeking to crush religious freedom in this country and to malign the Bible? which was at the foundation, now the Bible has had to be uh, enclosed in a monument in Washington, D.C., a museum. Yeah, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a broad question, and it might be a little bit outside of my area of expertise. I, I think, obviously, you've had um, progressive, atheistic or agnostic um, professors that have long dominated the elite academy, and so... They're the ones educating the teachers who are then going off and, and to teach in so many of our schools, mm-hmm. writing popular and academic books, arguing that most of the founders were deists, or they desired the strict separation of church and state. 
And then I think over the last 20 years, there's just been this uh, cultural shift that I find very problematic. I think in large part because so many Americans are turning from God and embracing um, progressive ideas, critical race theory and such, mm-hmm. as the new gospel. And so it's it, it, they're, they're, they're fervent about it, right? And so they want to impose their views on everyone else. And so, you know, if you have a, um, a cake baker in Colorado who, who can't participate in a same-sex wedding ceremony, I mean, adults would just say, well, that's his view, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's plenty of other cake bakers around. Let's be clear about that. But no, we have to force him to do what we want him to do. And and Colorado is seeking to override the Supreme Court three times in a row to bring the same guy uh, and others back into under dominion, cutting off all freedom, all religious freedom, and to compel them to do what the uh, uh, godless, God-hating liberal organizations are after. We'll be right back, friends. Stay tuned. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. Saveus.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at saveus.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, saveus.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, saveus.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived. Save America Ministries website at saveus.org. I want to make available to you, my friends, a copy of Mark David Hall's book, Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land, How Christianity Has Advanced Freedom and Equality for All Americans. Uh, This book is somewhat, in fact, it's very significantly unique. And uh, it captured my attention as I began to go through it. I have read so many books Uh, concerning our country, concerning its Christian uh, founding, and so on. But this book is unique in that uh, Mark David Hall uh, actually pierces through a lot of the various positionings that uh, people try to make and and actually is dealing with some subjects that uh, uh, might feel pretty awkward for us. And uh, so I want to make available this book to you. It's an $18 book, yours for $16. It's on our website, saveus.org. Give us a call, 1-800-SAVE-USA. That's 1-800-SAVE-USA. Or write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check at $5 for postage and handling, and we'll get this book in your hands. Remember, proclaim liberty throughout the land. That's coming from the book of Leviticus, which is inscribed in uh, engraved there on the Liberty Bell. That's right. The Liberty Bell may be cracked, but uh, that just means we're not perfect, but we're pressing forward. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul said? I don't count myself to have arrived, but this one thing I do, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That was the intent of the Puritans, of the pilgrims, and so on. And uh, 
That should be our intent today, but you can't do that if you're going to shift the ground under you and get rid of its very foundation. For as the psalmist said, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Okay, uh, Mark, one of the the things that uh, always, always, always comes up is the so-called separation of church and state. Back in 1947, a uh, infamous superior Supreme Court Justice, Chief Justice Earl Warren, was in charge when this particular doctrine, I believe, uh, was was uh, declared. And in reality, there was no actual legal precedent, nothing to support this, other than apparently a letter from Thomas Jefferson to the Danbury Baptists uh, indicating, because they were concerned that uh, Jefferson, uh, with the federal government, was going to establish a national church. And he said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. Uh, there's a wall of separation between us doing that. We're not going to do that. So that then became the foundation, it seems to me, for this uh, unfortunate ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court uh, declaring a separation of church and state. What say you? Yeah, so um, the 1947 decision of Everson versus Board of Education, sort of ironically, it was an originalist decision. Both the majority and the dissent said we must interpret the Establishment Clause in light of the founders' views, their, their original understanding. Unfortunately, as you point out, what they do is they look only at Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, and especially this 1802 letter by Thomas Jefferson that says that the Establishment Clause builds a wall of separation between church and state. Now, it's very unfortunate that they highlighted that because Jefferson had nothing to do with the First Amendment. He was over in Europe at the time. He didn't help write it. He didn't help ratify it. So it's not clear why we would look to him for guidance. And the wall is a very bad metaphor because walls work both ways, right? It yes, they the do. It keeps the state out of the business of the church, but it also keeps the church out of the business of the state. But we're talking about the Establishment Clause. And remember how that reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And so one of the things I argue in my last book and in this one is that the Establishment Clause means what it says. It's a restriction first only on government, on mm-hmm. Congress first. And the states later, in no way, shape, or form, restriction on the church. In other words, there was supposed to be a door, and there was no handle on the Congress's side or the government side of the door, but there was a handle on the church's side, on Christian's side, to be able to uh, speak into the life of their government. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I, I still don't even like that metaphor because I think it suggests that the Establishment Clause prohibits government from doing lots and lots of things. Mm-hmm. I think it primarily says we aren't going to have an official national church. Exactly. But that doesn't mean that presidents can't issue calls for prayer and fasting or that states can't fund religious schools on the same terms as other schools or that the national government can't do the same, right? And what do you do uh, with the Supreme Court, and above the Supreme Court, uh, the the judges there are the Ten Commandments in bas relief, uh, so prominent that you pos- can't possibly miss it, uh, and on 
many, if not most, of the major government buildings in our nation's capital are engraved the words of Scripture. Right. So all over D.C., all over the nation, you have religious monuments, monuments of the Ten Commandments and such on public land. And in none of these cases is that an establishment of religion. It's not creating an official state church for Virginia or the nation. And that's why I just want to completely get away from the swall language and say let's focus in on the text of the Establishment Clause and how it was originally understood. And in no way, shape, or form does it require taking down a World War I-era cross, as we saw in a recent case. In no way does it keep Ohio from including a Star of David on its Holocaust memorial, even though the freedom from religion people said you can't do that. And so I think if, if we actually look at what history teaches us, and get beyond this one letter by Thomas Jefferson, we'll have a far more accurate understanding of this um, religion clause. Fortunately, six justices do that today, and so we're getting a lot of good rulings coming out out of the Supreme Court. Well, it was the exact same kind of thinking that brought about Roe versus Wade in 1973. There was no legal foundation for that. Zero. It was created out of whole cloth just to try to uh, pander uh, to what the justices perceived as a growing trend of uh, so-called progressives in the country. And uh, it hung around us for all these years until finally, uh, just in the last few months, it was uh, eradicated. I guess it was about a year ago that it was eradicated. And uh, you know, I think, Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I think you're right, but it, it's profoundly ironic. I think when Roe versus Wade had been decided, only five states had seriously liberalized their abortion laws. So what kind of trend is that, that five out of 50 states had done this sort of thing? And really what the court said in the Dobbs decision is the Supreme Court should have never gotten into this business in the first place. It should be handled at the state level. And in every state, we should have an argument. Is abortion going to be allowed? Or is it going to be restrictive? If it's restricted, how will it be restricted? And that's the proper way to decide it. And, of course, it's my hope and prayer, as I'm sure it is yours, that in every state we would have uh, virtual prohibitions on abortion unless they're necessary to save the life of a mother. And that would end almost all abortions that occur in the United States today. If we were to go back to 1961 and then 1963, removal of prayer, removal of the Bible from the public schools, and then 1982, with the removal of the Ten Commandments from uh, uh, the courthouse walls, and uh, what what was going on there? What it was the trend? Why was that a trend? Was that uh, just the natural progression of the separation of church and state, or was there a growing animus toward all authority, especially biblical authority? Yeah, I would. Say it's a natural outplaying of Everson versus the Board of Education, which we talked about. There was another establishment clause case or two in the 1940s. Then the court didn't touch it during the 1950s. But as you point out, in the early 60s, you have teacher-led prayer in public school declared to be unconstitutional, and then Bible reading in public school declared to be unconstitutional. And one wonders but how it, that could be declared unconstitutional when those were not done by an act of Congress. Yeah, of course. The very statement itself was unconstitutional. Right, right. The, um, you know, people, conservatives, sometimes argue that, that, that the Bill of Rights shouldn't apply to the states. 
Um, that ship has kind of sailed, I think, until virtually every provision has been applied to the state mm-hmm. for over 100 years. Not everyone right. for 100 years, but when they started the process. The 14th Amendment. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, I think you can make a good argument that even if the Establishment Clause applies to the state, that um, teacher-led prayer in public schools could be constitutionally permissible. But, again, the trend is interesting. I, I, I think it, it really is a trend among intellectual elites, among justices, but not the American people. Something like 270 amendments were introduced in Congress to overturn Eagle versus Vitale. I think 49 of 50 governors came out against it. I think something like 80 percent of American citizens were against that school prayer decision. And so, again, it's not a trend among Americans broadly. It's a trend among justices who really are taking the law into their own hands very inappropriately. So. And and who are rapidly uh, anti-Christian and anti-biblical authority, obviously. Okay, now, um, when we look at religious symbols, it, it's fascinating that uh, the, the largest, most prominent uh, monument there in our nation's capital is the Washington Monument, uh, very, very tall, and at its very top is an interesting inscription. What is that inscription? You might have told me on the Latin, but it's in like Laos Deo, yeah. I believe. Which means glory to God, right? That's right, yeah. So it's a high point in Washington, D.C. The sun, when it rises, um, you know, strikes it, and it, it, it's glorious. And, and as you point out, Washington, D.C. is just filled with symbols like that, including in very recent construction. The Holocaust Memorial has the Hebrew scriptures all over the place and the Star of David and that sort of thing. Isn't it interesting, yeah. though, Mark, that uh, when you, when the model for the cap of the Washington Monument was brought into Congress, uh, and, and uh, I, I can't remember exactly what building it is, uh, they covered, they turned the cap around and covered it so that the people coming through, the American citizens coming through, would not recognize what was really on that cap. Yeah, you know, there's just so many nonsensical things along those lines. Um, Sometimes I think it might be an anti-Christian animus. Sometimes... I think these groups like Freedom From Religion Foundation, American Humanists and whatnot, have just so scared principles that public schools say that if students say we want to have a Bible club along with all the other clubs, they say, oh, you can't do that. All right, we'll be right back. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church.
very wonderful and uh, fascinating book, Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land, How Christianity Has Advanced Freedom and Equality for All Americans. It's an $18 book, yours for $16. On our website, friends, saveus.org, saveus.org. You can call us at 1-800-SAVE-USA. That's 1-800-SAVE-USA. Or write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879. Richmond, Virginia, 23255, writing a check at $5 for postage and handling. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land. We're doing that today. Proclaim liberty. But uh, the Bible says where the Spirit of the Lord is liberty. How about where the Spirit of the Lord is not, Mark? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. And I think, you know, Christians throughout history have been concerned with different types of liberty. Obviously, the, the the freedom from sin is at the core of our Christian faith, right? Mm-hmm, and it comes right. through our faith and the saving work of Jesus Christ, and that's true liberty. Uh, but I think we also have to, be, have to be concerned with other sorts of liberty, the liberty to act upon our religious convictions, to share the gospel, and that sort of thing. How about the and liberty so, to yeah. do whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want, and to whomever you want? What is that? What is that? Is that liberty? Or is that uh, no license American and licentiousness? That's right. No American founder would have said that's liberty. They distinguish between liberty and licentiousness. So I think if you even said to Thomas Jefferson, I have the freedom or the liberty to publish pornography, he would look at you and say, what in the heck are you talking about? You don't have a right to do something wrong like that. Uh, most of us have grown up with a John Stuart Mill view of liberty, which is what you just articulated. I have the freedom to do whatever I want as long as I'm not harming someone else. You know, even if I'm harming myself, that's all right. Um, That's a a view of liberty, but it's not the Christian view. Yeah, because the Christian view of liberty includes not harming the uh, society as a whole, uh, which would prohibit uh, pornography. And one Supreme Court justice famously said, uh, I'll know it when I see it. Today, apparently, we don't even know it when we see it because it's being portrayed it's being uh, presented blasphemously to our children in our public schools and uh, in our libraries and so on. Uh, this is not liberty. Uh, this is licentiousness multiplied on steroids, I think. You know, I, I agree with that 100 percent. No, no, no question about that. All right. Now, the purpose of your book, one purpose is not just to inform us about our history in that sense, but to help us to understand and recover uh, the understanding that the Christian foundations of our country and the role of the pilgrims, the Puritans, and others after them, uh, the evangelicals, as you say, uh, really inured to the benefit of this country in vast ways that are seldom recognized. The import for true freedom, for true liberty, and for true social justice came from evangelicals. Tell us about it. Yeah, sure. I I think that's exactly right. So I argue in a number of contexts how it was um, in the founding era, individuals motivated by their faith who began the fight against slavery, who ended slavery in eight states. It was um, evangelicals primarily who led the fight against slavery in the antebellum area, that is the era before the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, these same evangelicals who are opposing the removal of Native Americans from lands to which they clearly had treaty rights in Georgia. 
and there was a bazillion reform movements of all sorts to reform prison, to educate the uneducated, to care for the orphans. And in hope, in part, what I do is I hope that my book is is inspirational. I think Christians should be involved in politics, but we should also be involved in society, and we should be serving the least of these. That's uh, the history of our country, and it's ignored, generally speaking, by superimposing a godless form of uh, uh, caring and uh, uh, freedom and so on that gives people the freedom to do, uh, the liberty to do that which the Bible prohibits, including the open and notorious practice of uh, sodomy, which uh, was always called sodomy, and which George Washington, the founder of our country, uh, called sodomy. It was not acceptable in his army, and today our army and navy are trying to promote People signing up on the basis of uh, sodomy, on the basis of uh, transgenderism and so on, even with recent ads that have just come out. What say you? It, um, it's distressing. It, it re- really is. I, um, yeah, I think we can have a reasonable debate. Should the state be looking into the bedroom of two men who um, you know, go off together to do things that the Bible clearly condemns? We can debate that, right? Many mm-hmm. states had historically uh, made that illegal. But I think it's an entirely different thing altogether to push it on American society and especially to push it on our children with these drag queen story hours and that sort of thing. Um, totally wrong, and Christians should be at the forefront of opposing that sort of um, impression upon especially our children, but really all of society. Is it actually possible to recover the kind of liberty uh, that our founders actually promoted uh, under God? You know, I think as Christians, uh, the main thing we can do, I've already said, we should be involved in serving, we should be involved in politics. The main thing we have to be involved in is, is pray, praying for revival, sharing the gospel. Uh, uh, you know, the country's gone through great awakenings before, the first great awakening, the second great awakening. Some scholars talk about a third great awakening. We don't have to argue about that. But for sure, America could use a great awakening today, whether it's the third or the fourth people repenting of their sins and turning to Christ and reforming their lives based on um, based on God's grace. Well, that's the fir- our primary hope. What's that? Yeah. No, I was just saying that's our primary hope, my primary hope. Exactly. People have asked me for 10 years now, Chuck, do you find any hope for our country? My answer is no, absent a mighty move of God by his Holy Spirit. That's our only hope, and it's always been humankind's only hope. If we go back to the first great awakening with the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, we find how a very staid presentation of that sermon by Jonathan Edwards, who just read it, uh, so shook the people that the East Coast was deeply shaken and uh, the first spiritual awakening uh, took place. And then that was before the Civil War, excuse me, before the Revolutionary War, uh, I seriously doubt we could have won the Revolutionary War if it had not been for that great, great Awakening. But then people fell away. Everything became back to business as usual. And uh, then came a second Great Awakening in the uh, early to mid-1800s and shook the nation in such a way, went to the, the uh, central part of the country. And 
I doubt that we could have survived the Civil War if it had not been for that Second Great Awakening. And here we are a long, long time since then, and we see a massive spiritual war that is attacking this country in the likes of which we have never, ever seen before. It's open, it's notorious, and uh, as the Apostle Paul said, the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly or carnal, but mighty through God to the casting down of the strongholds now uh, that are gripping our country. We desperately need a third great awakening. How would that come, do you think, Mark? You know, it would come through the power of God. That's all I can say. I mean, Christians, you know, God uses Christians. We should be involved. We should be praying. We should be sharing the gospel. We should be supporting ministries that, that, that spread the gospel. I think we need to do a better job of discipling our children, um, raising mm. them up in a, in, in a godly manner. Uh, but ultimately, it depends on, on God's grace. Well, it does. And uh, God's grace will lead us to repentance. If it does not lead us to repentance, we've missed the mark totally. Uh, the word repentance is one of the most despised words uh, today in the church, and that's why it's seldom used, because the word obey is deemed a four-letter word in our churches today. In fact, pastor after pastor and parachurch leader on this program for the past se- several years have admitted that the word obey is the most hated word in the church today. Yet it's the only word that Jesus said would please God, would please him, and uh, it seems that if we're going to, if we have any hope, Uh, There's going to have to be a restoration of the word obey, which will bring a restoration of the word repentance, which will bring a restoration of a cry for God's mercy. Right now, we cry for grace, but what we really need is mercy, I think. Your last word. That sounds sounds exactly right to me. I, I agree with you 100%. Well, brother, you've done a wonderful job with this book, and I really appreciated it. Uh... You, you gave actually a very fascinating insight uh, that I had never heard before as to what really lay, one of the premier motivations that lay uh, at the foundation of the separation of church and state uh, that I think people would find to be fascinating if they read your book. I have never heard it before. Uh, do you want to allude to it quickly? Sure. So if the American founders um, didn't want anything approximating the sort of separation of church and state that would include a wall of separation of church and state, where did this come from? And I argue, and I'm borrowing here from a a very prominent law professor, Philip Hamburger, that it was a profound anti-Catholic animus of the mid-19th to early 20th century. Mm -hmm. Uh, Basically, as Catholics started becoming a a pretty decent percentage of the American population, 25 percent or so, they started to say, uh, in public schools are, are taking off at this point, they started to say, hey, we want our share of the tax dollars so we can have our own schools. Because the public schools were, in effect, Protestant schools. You had Protestant prayers. You had the King James Version of the Bible that was read. Mm-hmm. And so in response, these Protestants, very um, unfortunately, I think, said, no, you can't have that. And, in fact, they started talking about a separation of church and state that would prohibit Catholics from receiving their share of the tax revenue. Now, they never wanted anything like this uh, the late 20th century wall of separation between church and state. They always assumed that public schools would continue reading the King James Version of the Bible mm-hmm. and having Christian prayers and that sort of thing. Uh, but what, what we saw is eventually there was a, the, the, this idea of separation of church and state was turned from an anti-Catholic um, 
move to an anti-religious move. We need to get religion out of the public square altogether. And at that point, you know, these people who used to support that say, what? This is not what we signed up for. Yeah. See, viewpoint still determines destiny. That's what that proves. Viewpoints still determine destiny, and you never know. Uh, there's the law of unintended consequences, and uh, we're experiencing the law of unintended consequences since then. Again, this wonderful book, friends, Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land, How Christianity Has Advanced Freedom and Equality for All Americans. Uh, $16 is going to put this $18 book in your hands. It's on our website, saveus.org, saveus.org. You can call us at 1-800-SAVE-USA or write to us at Save America Ministries. Also, I would urge you to become a partner with us uh, here as we're ready to launch into our 29th year on the air. There's only one way that we can stay on the air, and that is through your gifts. You notice we have no commercial support. And the reason for that is the moment you get commercial support is the moment you feel required to conform to the expectations of that commercial support. They become controlling. All you have to do is look at what's been happening in television Uh, and it controls so many people on the radio far more than you ever could imagine, friends. Yes, even Christian radio. That's right. And so that's why we do not have commercial support here on this program. We want to be free to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and to do it in a way that we're not constrained by economic uh, forces that would compel us one way or the other. That means... We have to rely upon God, and he relies upon you. And so I urge you to become a partner with us. Send your gifts by faith, friends, to Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Write to us at Save America Ministries. Uh, Call us, 1-800-SAVE-USA. And you might actually uh, consider becoming a monthly uh, donor, even through the automatic uh, giving program that we have right there on the website, saveus.org. Mark David Hall, thank you so much for uh, joining us, brother. Uh, You've been a blessing. And uh, again, I trust that uh, many will pick up your book and be encouraged and inspired by it. That's your purpose, and I'm grateful for it. All right, friends. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all the inhabitants thereof. There's only one way we can do that, and it's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Found in 12 of the 13 founding documents of the colonies of our country. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.